for swordplay. Super Bowl winning quarterback Tom Brady said in a recent interview that his wife is a, quote, good witch who uses superstitious rituals so that he will win games. Alex, what do you think about that? Man, wouldn't it be crazy, Nick, if people kept laughing and were like, ha ha, very funny guys. But then Tom and his wife hold like a press conference and his wife's like, hey, look at what happens when I remove this magic necklace. And then she shrivels up into an ugly old lady who's like, she, I'm actually 400 years old. And then Tom is all stunned like, whoa, babe, why are you not hot anymore? That'd be crazy, right? <laughs> I mean, listen, you, you can't go to nine Super Bowls and win six of them without either being a witch yourself or being married to one. I mean, it's <laughs> unreal. It's just, <laughs> there it is. This is wild stuff. Yeah, we are your hosts. <clears throat> I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Colossians chapter 3. And this is a good chapter where Paul really brings things together in a practical way for the for the Christians. So let's dive right in, Nick. What do we have first? Yeah, and by the way, if you haven't read the chapter, hit pause. We'll still be here when you get back. Read the whole thing. Uh, read the whole book of Colossians. See how chapter 3 fits in with the, the flow of things. So let's dive into verse 1 of chapter 3, where uh, Paul talks about how uh, these Christians, they've been raised with Christ. Alex, how are we raised with Christ? Well, I think Paul already answered this in chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Now, it's important to notice the order of events laid out by Paul. We weren't first raised up and then later baptized to be buried with him. That's backwards. But it's only through baptism that God does his work to raise us up. And it's also important to note that baptism is not a work, at least not a work of man, right? In this verse, it's God's work. So this is completely in harmony with Ephesians 2.8, which says no man is saved by works. Those are the works of man. Uh, but in baptism, we put our faith in the working of God to cut away the body of flesh and to raise us up with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's Ephesians 2.6, that same uh, context. So the concept of being raised up with Christ is perfectly parallel between Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. And this is why we believe in baptismal regeneration as the work of God at the event in which we put our faith in him. What do you think, Nick? No, I think that's right on the money. Um, exactly right. Baptism, um, Colossians 2.12 makes that connection for us. Uh, the only thing I'll <clears throat> point out is that Paul is going to get intensely practical with what that risen life looks like now. And uh, uh, before we get to those intensely practical things, though, staying in verse 1, Paul talks about how uh, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Alex, talk to us a minute about what is significant about Christ being at the right hand of God. Sure. Well, I think first Paul is making a strong allusion to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a pretty big messianic psalm. Uh, most People are aware of that, but if you're not, uh, Psalm 110, uh, verse 1 says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Colossians 3.1 says that Christ is currently seated at the right hand of God. And that is fulfilling the vision of Psalm 110. But the work of setting Christ's enemies under his feet, that actually is still underway. It's still happening according to 1 Corinthians 15.25 and Hebrews 10.13. A second thing going on, though, and, and perhaps even more curious, is the connection between Christ being at the right hand of God connected with our being raised up with him. That's all in the same verse here. So here's a few puzzle pieces to think about. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 27 says, Jesus speaking to the churches, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So Jesus applies the messianic verses from Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and even overtones from Psalm 82 about ruling the nations. And then he applies those same psalms and the concepts not just to himself, but also to the church. Now, we've covered some of this in our Second Timothy podcast uh, with the trustworthy saying in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, which says, For if we died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Future, we will. Bottom line, I think, is that we hold currently the status of being sons of God in the heavenly realms, seated with Christ who is at the right hand of God. This would let the Colossians know the power that they hold when compared to the, let's say, rulers, authorities, elementary principles, etc. in the heavenly realms. And thus, this would even undermine, again, the worship of angels or Jewish mystic rituals. What do you think, Nick? Now, you made a lot of good connections there. Um, what's interesting is for the early church and, and for us, is that this passage demonstrates the deity of Christ. Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, uh, quoted this passage in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can find the parallel passages in those. Um, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. I think you're right. And as quoted in the New Testament, it consistently points to Christ as God. And so the right hand, that denoted power and privilege and rulership. In other words, Christ is the ruler of this fallen world, uh, and he achieved that uh, rulership. He was enthroned, if you will, at the cross um, when he died on the cross. So, hmm. well, well, Nick, let's... talk to us about uh, this next Verse. How do yeah. we seek or set our minds on the things above? You see this both in verse 1 and 2. Um, and what are the things? Can you say a word on that for us? Yeah, set your minds on the things above. Um, it means to desire the things above. Um, I like, there's a song by um, Jewish reggae singer Modis Yahoo who says, <laughs> he sings a line that says, You've got your about feet. That guy. Get your feet on the ground, but your head in the clouds. Um, that's kind of what it's like. Don't hyper-focus on the environment around you. Occupy your minds with the new creation. Even though you dwell and live in the fallen creation, you need to occupy your mind with the new creation. So you daily 
uh, must seek to put uh, kingdom priorities first in your heart and in your mind. And that's that's that was a charge then. It's the charge today. We are still called to daily put the kingdom priorities first in our hearts and our minds. Uh, what say you, Alex? Nice. That was a good throwback to Modest Yahoo. I like yeah. That. <laughs> well, the way I was. Uh, seeing this verse is that the exalted status that we hold in Christ in the heavenly realms is a current spiritual reality. These are the things above, the heavenly things. The things below on earth are the lives we currently have and the bodies that we currently live in. And these bodies have cravings for fleshly indulgence. And this is, you know, on the tail end of chapter two, which we're continuing that thought about what these mystics are doing, it's not going to help them against fleshly indulgence. You need a changed heart, a changed mind. So in these earthly bodies, we will suffer affliction, but it should be affliction suffered for the spreading of the gospel, not with these severe treatment rituals of the body. So our lives on earth, um, they're not pictured in the Bible as that of rich kings, Although in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says that there were some immature Christians there in Corinth trying to act that way, <laughs> acting as if they'd already become rich, already become kings. And Paul says, wait, I, <laughs> I'd like to join you in that. I wish you were, <laughs> but yeah. that's not our current role. So there is a current misalignment then between the reality of the Christian on earth and the reality of the Christian in the heavenly realms. That misalignment, I think, will be brought into harmony in the resurrection when we are revealed to be the sons of God, Romans 8.19. And the inheritance of our glorious body is reserved for us in heaven. So when Christ is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. That's what he'll say in verse 4, Colossians 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Now we are children of God, that's current, now we are, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So I think to be seeking the things above refers to our resurrection, our future reign with Christ. And that also means that there are things, though, that must be done now on earth. And these are practical things, and Paul will get to that momentarily. Which brings us to verse 3, um, where Paul says, You've died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that word there for hidden, interesting little word, it's cemetery language. And I believe you're going to talk about that, Alex. Um, what does it mean for one's life to be hidden with Christ in God? Well, the word hidden there in the Greek is crypto. Uh, it means to hide or conceal. It's where we get the English word uh, the crypt, that funeral language, also where we get the word cryptic, the word we use for like puzzles and something hidden away, concealed. So if it's hidden, then to know what it is, we should look at what will be revealed. And that's what we see in verse 4. Christ will be revealed and us with him in glory. That will be revealed. That's our resurrection. So there also may be some battling going on, though, in the background between the term life and how Paul uses that compared to maybe what's going on with the Jewish mystics. So if these Jewish mystics in their harsh treatment of the body are spilling their own blood, much like the priest of Baal did at Mount Carmel in the days of Elijah, then life 
could be understood here as the concept known as life force. So the Old Testament forbids the drinking of blood because of this very thing. It says the life is in the blood, so don't drink it. If the Jewish mystics are trying to claim to have some sort of spiritual power through their own blood or life force, then Paul here is making whatever that is useless compared to the life force that we have in Christ through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ, through the life force of his blood, we have salvation, we have our transformation, and in the uh, revealing, we have our glorification. So Christ's blood plus anything else equals too much. So this spills, uh, no pun intended, into thoughts on the Lord's Supper, an event in which we declare that Christ is our life force. And I believe we sing the song, There's Power in the Blood. Isn't that right? That's right. There might be some overlap there. What do you think, Nick? No, I think that's, I think that's right on. Um, so this word hidden, we've seen repeatedly in Colossians already. Um, 1 verse 26, 2 verse 3, the mystery hidden for ages in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that's in Christ. And now here it is again for, um, I believe it's the third and final time. Um, and here it's <clears throat> used again um, in terms of denoting uh, safety and security. God kept the mystery hidden, and it was safe, it was secure, all those ages and generations. Christ isn't going to lose all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so they're safe and they're secure in his grasp. And here, too, our life, the Christian's life, is safe and secure because it's hidden. It's not just with Christ, but it's with Christ in God. So you have kind of a double protection, as it were. So I, I believe there is security, safety for the believer when it comes to us trusting our lives uh, to Christ and uh, in God. Certainly hidden. I mean, that smacks in the face of, um, again, my read, pre-Gnostic or Gnostic influences that were floating around there in Colossae at the time when Paul is writing this. Yeah, mystery um, cults. That's right. That's right. And so, but Paul goes deeper, um, as he typically does, and um, he talks about how Christ, since our life is hidden in Christ, that means that Christ, we have this new life, and Christ is the source of this new life, and that's what sustains us as Christians. Um, he is the energizer of our life with him. Um by the way, not something that's going to happen in the sweet by and by. There's another song that we sing, right? Yeah. Um, but this is right now the reality for Christians, and we can't overlook that, that right. uh, it is now hidden with Christ in God. And we need that energizing life force right now for our day-by-day -day renewal that Paul will talk about here in a few verses. But before we get there, we got to go through verse 5, which says, uh, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to these uh, list of things we're going to get to. Um, Nick, why would we put to death? Why would we mortify? There's uh, that graveyard language again, the earthly things within us. Yeah, mortify. I remember listening to a sermon one time where uh, the guy was using, I believe the King James Version has mortify there, and he kept, he had a, an accent and he kept rolling that R, mortify. It was great. Um, <laughs> Yeah, why? Why would we do this? Well, is it because we love God? Well, yeah. Is it because we're supposed to love one another? Sure. Is it because we're Christians, so we should act like it? Yeah. Is it because we don't want to go to hell? Sure. 
All those things, yes. But listen, Paul's starting place with this is Christ. Hmm. Since you have been hidden with Christ, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Um, Christ, your life, you will appear with him in glory. All of those other reasons are good, but Christ must be the supreme reason as to why we would put to death the earthly things within us. It must be Christ. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we need to put to death anything that inhibits our transformation that Christ is bringing about within us or that would disqualify us from our glorification that harkens back to chapter 2. Don't let anyone disqualify you uh, of your prize, of your inheritance. Good thoughts. Well, Nick, there are a lot of things listed here in verse 5, and I think this calls for a lightning round. Lightning round. Lightning round. Well, Nick, um, we're really going to put your feet to the fire here, so... um, you know, put on your Karate Kid Rising Sun bandana and uh, get ready to do the uh, flying crane kick because this is going to get intense, all right? Yeah. All right. Lightning round, starting in verse 5 on your marks, get set, go. Nick, what is sexual immorality? Uh, another word for that is fornication. Uh, the Greek word, we get our English word pornography from it, porneia. Um, it's unlawful sexual contact or unlawful sexual relationships. Mm. Nick, what is impurity? Well, it could be sexual. It could just be uncleanness generally. These are the mud holes in life. Um, young people with your dank memes, I'm talking to you. <laughs> dank memes. Nick, what is passion? Not always bad, but here it is. It speaks of deprived, depraved passions. Okay. What is evil desire? It's wrong, wicked, deep desires from the inside. Oh, then what is covetousness? Or greed, uh, the strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions. Paul says this last one is idolatry when our heart and our mind is absorbed by something other than God. And that's the end of the lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, we'll put the sound effects in. You don't have to make the sound effects. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, so, we got more of those coming too, by the way. That's right. That's right. It's going to be an intense uh, podcast full of lots of lightning <clears throat> and thunder. Well, that's certainly, I mean, all of those things close together, it's a kind of a dark list of uh, vices. Yeah, it is. I mean, very, very intense and makes me wonder, you know, are these are these the sort of things perhaps being done by some of the opponents there that Paul is battling against in Colossae? The... The implication whenever you run across stuff like that, that you got to put stuff to death, a command like that is... Yeah, they probably were. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, well, let's look at verse 5 here, sure, at least sure. one of these more closely, and talk about greed, which is idolatry, as Paul says there at the end of verse 5. Alex, talk to us about how does greed amount to idolatry? Is greed literally idolatry? Yeah, there's definitely some parsing I think needs to be done here. Idolatry is literally the act of ritual performed for any god but Yahweh. Idolatry can get pretty dark pretty fast. In fact, I plan on writing my uh, master's thesis on this very thing. Mm. I think we need a clarification on what greed or covetousness means in this context. So lexical insights will tell us that this word can mean insatiableness and exploitation. So here's a reality check. Um, Wanting an extra scoop of ice cream is not the kind of greed we're talking about in this verse. (laughs) 
So, you know, you have um, a very nice car. She's like, well, good for you. This is not that type of greed we're talking about here. This was a dark verse. Look, I mean, look back at the things that he says with uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. And then he wraps all this up saying that this is like idolatry. He says, well, he says it is idolatry. So how is it idolatry? Then that's the question. We're talking about dark, insatiable, evil desires and exploitation of others to get what you want. This um, perhaps uh, is a a non-religious context Paul has in mind. Um, Because, okay, you know, maybe they're not spilling someone's blood to the gods. Um, But that still doesn't mean it's okay to spill someone's blood literally or figuratively in the business context, right? Or the Hmm. political context or the social context. Yeah, but it's a dog-eat-dog world, Alex. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) And if you eat each other up, uh, that's cannibalism. And that looks a lot like ancient idolatry. So exploitation of human life Stepping on others to get to the top, this is idolatry. Also, idolatry is also idolatry. So there you go. What do you think, Nick? (laughs) I think you're right that idolatry certainly has ritualistic components. And I think this was coming out in your your, your comments as well, that at the same time, the Bible does not confine idolatry to that exclusively. Um, Substituting some created thing for the Creator in this case, money and possessions, making that the center of your life, that's idolatry. Uh, Tim Keller, he's written a a little book called uh, Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he's a real good definition of idols. He says, basically, it's when you turn a good thing into an absolute or ultimate thing. Money and possessions, those can be good things until we turn them into ultimate things. And that seems to be what Paul has in mind here with greed. Paul also alludes to five of the Ten Commandments in this uh, uh, verse here. Covetousness is the last on the list. And as the Jews thought about the law, uh, they kind of thought about it in like a circular way. And so the tenth corresponded to the first commandment. So that's interesting. Coveting spoke to have no other gods before me. Uh, So how we view our money, how we use our money, that has spiritual significance, and we must never overlook that. Sure. How we gain our money. Um, Yeah. Almost kind of, you know, now that you talk about it, it reminds me that there is this spiritual background going on, right? We have these rulers, these authorities, the prince of the power of the air, all of these things, which uh, what do they want? Uh, They want you to participate in these evil things. So when you do... It amounts to idolatry. I can see where the connection comes in. What else Here's a fun here? one, verse 6, um, and, and it'll come out uh, as we go along. Uh, verse 6, in some translations, talk about sons of disobedience, and this is where it gets fun because mine doesn't have that. Ooh, that's what's going on there. They're leaving stuff out of the Bible. Um, <laughs> Who are the sons of disobedience, and how will God's wrath come upon them? Verse 6, Alex. Okay, well, at first I thought of passages in the Gospels, like Matthew 13, 38, where Jesus explains the parable of the wheat and the tares, and the tares are the um, sons of the evil one, 
sown by the devil. That's what Jesus says. Then in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says to a group of people, you are of your father, the devil. But I think the explanation perhaps is, those are those are relevant, but I think it's best found in the parallel passages of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, and chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Um, it says in Ephesians 2 that the prince of the power of the air is the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. And um, chapter 5 is the parallel passage to here. Don't walk in those. Don't walk in them. The context in Colossians 3, 6 through 7 says that they once walked and were living in them. So I'm assuming them are the sons of disobedience. But who are those sons? And in our previous podcast, we noted how the elementary principles of the world of Colossians 2, 8 and verse 20 were the spiritual bad guys. What if the sons of disobedience are the same group of spiritual bad guys? You know, as Christians, we walk and live in Christ and live according to Christ, but by walking in the Son of God, we thus become the sons of God. And so I think Paul is saying that by walking in the sons of disobedience then, these evil rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, the ones stripped of their rule by Christ on the cross— by walking in those sons of disobedience, one then becomes a part of these sons of disobedience. You can think of it this way. We become like the gods or God that we serve. What do you think, Nick? That's good stuff. Um, so let me just back up here before I get to my comments about that. Uh, the sons of disobedience is, um, like I said, my English Standard Version doesn't have that phrase, sons of disobedience. If you're working with the New International Version, your translation is probably missing that phrase as well. Uh, well, what are they doing? They leaving stuff out of the Bible? No, because you can find that phrase over in the parallel passage over in Ephesians. Conspiracy. So, yeah, I know. Um, so, no, the, nothing's nothing's left out or anything like that. You can still find the phrase over there. It's just not here. And the reason seems to be these that that phrase is missing in two important uh, manuscript witnesses. You got P forty six. Uh, which is dated to sometime in the 200s. And then you've also got Codex Vaticanus, uh, two very important witnesses. And um, uh, it would seem that since the phrase sons of disobedience is over there in that parallel passage, that may explain why copyists could have inserted it here. Um, Admittedly, the majority of the texts, uh, the old uh, ancient manuscripts that we have, have the words there. So there's that. I digress. (laughs) The phrase, sons of disobedience, my take on it is that this is a Semitic phrase for someone characterized by disobedience. So it's as if disobedience gave birth to a child, and that child is the son. And so they're going to have all those qualities of disobedience in them. It's whatever, whoever these guys are, right, whether um, it's what you say, Alex, with the supernatural beings, the dark bad guys, or just um, uh, bad guys who are humans, this is clearly not a phrase to describe the saved. All right. these the, No one who's saved is ever described as a son of disobedience. So uh, these are faithless individuals who engage in practices of disobedience. What that does is it hastens God's coming fury and wrath. That's uh, not a good thing either. So right. all around to be avoided. And um, let that be an encouragement, I think, to the Christian too, that God doesn't see the Christian 
as a disobedient son. Yeah. A naughty boy that needs to be punished. It's like, no, that's not how the Bible talks about the Christian. That's right. And that's because of his grace. So we can be thankful for that. Nick, we have another list upon us in verse 8. I think this calls for round two of another lightning round. Lightning round. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Nick. Well, uh, start your Rocky theme music and get pumped up. You uh, have quite a bit of stairs to climb at the Philadelphia Capitol building. Here we go. uh, Let's start rolling. You need to catch this chicken. Nick, on your marks, get set. And go, what is anger? It's not just being upset. It's fury which seeks revenge. Hmm. Well, then what is wrath? Or rage, uh, having to do with being red-faced, steaming anger, spitting mad, just anger intensified. Nick, what is malice? It's ill will toward another, even wishing them harm. Ooh. Well, Nick, what is slander? It's the kind of speech which seeks to harm another person's character. It desires to injure them in some way by what you're saying. Well, then what is obscene talk? Or filthy language. This would include your four-letter words. It would include all vulgar words, not only spoken, but typed on social media pages too, people. Nick, shut the front door. That's the end of the lightning round. That's it. Round two. Good job. Well, we definitely have another list of dark things. Um, man, Paul's, Paul's really hitting on some specific things. It's, it's crazy to think about that all of this could be happening in Colossae. Yeah, this stuff, it, craw- it crawls right into your lap and eats your lunch. All right, it's wow. right there where you live. Like a gremlin. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about verses 9 and 10. Okay. Uh, some people do include lying on the list. I didn't. Uh, because it does seem to be its own distinct thing here. Um, so that's that's in verse 9. Don't lie to one another. Don't right. want to overlook that. But then he goes on, he talks about old self, new self stuff, verses 9 and 10. When when did the Colossians lay aside the old self and put on this new self, Alex? I think they did that at the same time in which they died with Christ, in which they were buried with Christ, in which they had the body of flesh cut away from them. In baptism. So it's no wonder that Paul says, just like here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 27, that by faith in Christ, you are sons of God and clothed with Christ in baptism. What do you think, Nick? No, I, I agree 100%. Um, old self, new self, this is uh, historical language. In fact, the, the tense that's used here indicates like a snapshot event, points to a specific time or moment in time in the past uh, when the old self was put off and the new self was put on. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 6, that might help bring some of this into sharp focus. It's baptism, um, just as you said. So when we are immersed, we were buried with him in baptism, Colossians 2 and verse 12. And then we are raised with him through faith in God's powerful working as well. That's right. Connected with this is the idea of renewal, old self, new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Alex, talk to us a minute about how are the Colossians being renewed and what is that renewal? Well, renewed here in the Greek is anakainao, it means to renew or to cause to grow up. This is a Pauline word. This is a word specific to Paul. 
and it's used only here and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, which says, Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. This idea of growing, this growth that comes from God. The renewal process is what happens after we put on the new self in baptism. We begin an inner transformation that, just like you see a baby that is born and slowly grows into an adult, we spiritually grow into the full-grown, mature image of God. In baptism, we become cleansed from all sin and receive the gift of salvation. After baptism, uh, we day by day receive a renewal in the inner man. Our, that's our transformation. And all of this culminates and will culminate in our glorification. This will be the clothing of our new bodies in the, in the resurrection. And it goes back to Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God made man in his image. And that image had no nationality, no, no ethnicity, things which really only came after Babel. And so Christ restores us to that pre-Babel, pre-fallen state of being in the garden. What are your thoughts, Nick? Uh, yeah, emphasis on the now. Uh, yes. Now the Christian's task is to be renewed. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that is a present tense thing. Yeah, present participle. It's used there. So this is a present tense thing being renewed in knowledge. That knowledge is that deeper, fuller, genuine knowledge um, here. So uh, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its created. We're, we're to grow into this new self, becoming someone different than we once were. That's the old self. Uh, as you said, mention of the image, that does take us back to the beginning. God created man in his image, Genesis 1, verse 27. But because of sin, that image was lost. It was broken, marred uh, due to sin. So uh, Christ comes, dies on the cross. Through Christ, that image is made new. It's restored. At conversion is when that image is restored. And yet there's also progress being made in our, as we grow spiritually, uh, we look more and more like our Creator. Uh, kind of what you said a few minutes ago about the God or gods that we serve. Well, Nick, we have another list here in verse 12. So this will be lightning round number three, and it will be more on the light side. So uh, get ready. Um, Young uh, Skywalker, you need to uh, not uh, think, only do, right? So here we go. Here we go. Nick, on your marks, get set and go. Nick, what is compassion? It's a heart which is overflowing with sympathy toward uh, another individual. It, it emphasizes also a desire to alleviate the suffering or the hurting that they're going through. Hmm. Nick, what is kindness? It's goodness. It's excellence. It's a, a disposition which seeks to do good to everyone. Nick, what is humility? Lowliness of mind. See Philippians 2, verse 3 for more on this. Uh, but it, it also entails other-mindedness, others' mindedness. Hmm. What is meekness? It's uh, also uh, gentleness. It's not weakness. Uh, it's a, a willingness to suffer. Rather than retaliate, it is power or strength under control. Think Jesus on the cross. Mm. What is finally, Nick, patience? It's the ability to stand up under the, the bad treatment that comes from other people. And that's the end of the third lightning round.
Well done, Jedi Master. <laughs> well, uh, so after verse 12 comes verse 13. How about that? And in <laughs> verse 13, uh, Paul says we are to bear with one another. If you have a complaint against uh, one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Alex, talk to us for a minute about <clears throat> what is forgiveness? How do we forgive as Christ forgave? Okay, well, first, there there is a lot of rich, good, deep theology on here, but the angle that I'm bringing in here is somewhat of a, a modern-day application. So I don't want to oversimplify things. Let's say um, to release a debt is a good metaphor, forgiveness, I think, uh, used by Jesus in his uh, prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. That's a good metaphor, but it's key to remember, though, that Paul Paul is speaking in the context of the church, his people, uh, Christ's people who are walking by faith and being renewed day by day. I point this out because there are highly skilled manipulators who will hijack the Christian doctrine of forgiveness and then use it against us in order to carry out their evil deeds. It, maybe that's part of what was going on in, in the Colossian church. I don't know, but that does happen today. Let me ask you something, Nick. Do you think Paul's saying to show loving forgiveness to the false teachers at Colossae? Ooh. Or even the Jewish mystics who don't ask for it, who don't repent, who sh don't show any deeds in keeping with repentance? Does Paul say to show them extra patience and love and forgiveness to let them keep leading? Hmm. I don't think so. I'm going to say no on this one. Because in the midst of all these revelations today about sexual abuse and pedophilia being done by leaders in the church, we have to get better at where we direct our loving forgiveness. That needs to be given to the victims and to the families of victims, not the victimizer. The parallel passage for this is Ephesians 5, 11 through 12. This speaks to it. It's, Paul says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Listen, when our brother in Christ, when he's wronged us, we tell him, we urge repentance, we release the debt, we forgive. But when a brother in Christ rapes and murders us, we expose him. We hand him over to the governing authorities. He was no brother. He was a wolf and of the sons of disobedience and of his father, the devil. And we need to start being a little bit more wise as serpents, not just innocent as doves. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, this. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, go back to our podcast where we interview Jimmy Hinton. To, that'll help frame some of this stuff. Uh, we've talked about this with, I think, with Jude as well. Yeah, um, second Peter. Stuff, it, it keeps coming up, right? It just it keeps coming up um, about these wolves. Uh, so that'll help frame uh, where we're coming from with uh, uh, with that discussion. Um, it's it's interesting that forgiveness is rooted in our understanding of Christ. Uh, we forgive others. As he has forgiven us, and how has forgiven? How has Christ forgiven us? He has forgiven us totally. He's forgiven us entirely. It's related to uh, the bearing or enduring of difficulties, which is what that literally means. The complaints that he talks about here. Um, it's related to putting up with others, even when they fail to act, um, and when they fail to be all that God expects them to be. Uh, it's interesting. It is the 
offended person who is to forgive. Uh, be mature. Take the initiative. Don't wait for an apology. Don't wait on them to move first. I know that happens a lot, right? I know I should forgive, but they need to come to me first. Well, no. But Paul says, if you've been offended, you forgive. You take the first step. Um, otherwise, what's going to happen? All those things that we talked about in verse 8, the anger and the malice and the evil desires, those things are going to be, they're, they're going to creep in and they're going to spoil the relationship that you have with that person, if there is one that exists, or it's going to spoil your relationship with God. Uh, listen, the new self does not hold grudges. So here's the tension, I think, Alex, right, uh, that that exists in this, because we do, we are called to forgive totally and completely, and yet, as you, I believe, accurately point out, there are some instances where, yeah, I don't forgiveness in in uh, toward a wolf i don't know that we can extend that right and uh, we need to be uh wise as serpents innocent as doves and a big part of this is just the idea of uh, not seeking uh, vengeance not taking vengeance into our own hands right it says in romans 12 that the lord will avenge you and so Jesus Christ himself will take care of vengeance, and he, he gives authority to the governing authorities. That in chapter Romans 13, uh, they bear the sword for a reason, to punish evildoers. And so um, I think the analogy of even um, – well, I, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just stop there. But, yeah, I mean, forgiveness is the most beautiful part about being a Christian, to know that we've been forgiven by Christ. And yes, we show that same forgiveness to each other because uh, we have faults and, and we, we mess up, but there is, a, there is a line in which we need to start distinguishing a tree by its fruit. Mm-hmm. We need to start calling a wolf a wolf, and that's all we're saying here. Nick, talk to us about verse 15. What does it look like? for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. So the foundation of our peace is Christ's completed work on the cross. In his death, Christ breaks down uh, what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, the dividing wall of hostility. And he makes peace between people, and he makes peace between people and God. Uh, We allow this peace that Christ brings us to overwhelm our troubled hearts. Uh, peace here, it carries the Hebrew idea of shalom, uh, a general sense of well-being, a quiet disposition arising from our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This peace, it governs, it controls or rules our emotions, our reactions, our words. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If there's peace in your heart, peace will flow from your lips. I think maybe that's how the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's well said. And that last part, uh, peace flowing from your lips, maybe even goes into our next question, verse 16. How does the indwelling of the word relate to admonishing one another? Paul connects these in that verse. Talk to us about that, Nick. Yeah, sure does. Um, admonishing. Uh, I believe we've run across this word previously. It's, it's the warning. Uh, warning someone of the the dangerous consequences of their actions or inaction, for that matter. Um, If we would live God-honoring, 
God-pleasing lives, we need to know what honors and pleases him. Without Christ's word indwelling our hearts and minds, we're not going to know how we should live. But as we look into his book, into the word, as we read and study our Bibles, we learn the ways of God, the way in which we should walk. Does that make sense? I think that's right. And we, we did talk about that word last time in our podcast, nuthateo. It means to cast upon someone's mind. And Paul did this often. He did it with tears. He did it as a father to his children, uh, spiritually speaking. He did it without shaming. And we do this for each other through even our songs and our poems. We're trying to move people to Christ-likeness. And if we want our words to be persuasive, then our words must flow from Christ's word, which indwells us. First, it indwells us through the gospel, and then more and more as we continue to pour God's word into our hearts and our minds. We sing with thankfulness in our hearts because of the indwelling of the word. You find the parallel passage in Ephesians 3.17 in which Paul is praying for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. And so you have this overlap of if you have the word dwelling in you, you have Christ dwelling in you. If you have Christ dwelling in you, you have the word dwelling in you. Out of the overflow then of the heart, the mouth speaks just as you spoke earlier about peace, Nick. What do you, yeah. what do you think? That's good stuff. Good, good connections all around. Well, we get to verse 17 then, and we have this phrase, do whatever you do, do all in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, Nick, what does it mean to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? As I reflect, it was in his name that demons were cast out. In his name, mighty works were performed. By faith in his name, we have the right to become God's child. We are baptized into his name. He is, his is the only name by which men are saved. There's life in his name, and at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And now, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, calls Christians to act for the sake of Christ's name. When we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, we are ultimately glorifying Christ. That is, we are lifting high his name by our actions. We work for his glory. We play for his glory. We worship his glory. We praise his glory. We serve to his glory. We pray for his glory. Whether we're talking about major events or mundane chores, everything we do should bring glory to God. Hmm. I want to touch a little bit on this in the name of idea, Nick. There seems to be a rich and deep history of what is called the name theology. So in one aspect, the name denotes authority when doing something based upon that name. Acts 2.38, we are baptized epitoanomati, on the name of Jesus Christ. We appeal to his authority. Yet in another baptism passage, Matthew 28.18-20, we are baptized eistoonoma, into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, denoting not authority there, but rather a transfer of property out of the kingdom of darkness into the name, possession of God. Sometimes name can denote one's reputation. You, we talk about my good name. Um, the Old Testament has a deep, rich history of name theology where God is said to put his name 
that is where his presence is said to dwell. And so in that sense, uh, we see an aspect of, of God's representation and indwelling at a certain location. And I think it's with this last aspect that I, I think best reflects what we have here in Colossians 3.17. I personally don't see an all-encompassing set of acts, but a more narrow parameter defined by our teaching and admonishing one another and our good deeds. In these things, we need to do as if we were in the presence of Jesus in his name and as his representatives. If you're creative enough to somehow spin the mundane into a moment of teaching and admonishing for each other or into some good deed, and into some good deed, then more power to you. I think that's great. Hmm. What do you think, Nick? No, that's that's love the name theology stuff. I mean, it's all over the Bible. It's everywhere. It's just, you know. rich and deep. Nick, talk to us about verses fifteen and sixteen and seventeen as a whole, then, because. Each verse says we got to give thanks. What's the significance of giving thanks in this context? Yeah, end of verse 15, and be thankful. End of verse 16, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Um, the end of verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Contextually, then, we do this by allowing Christ's peace to control our hearts. Uh, it, we do this in our singing. We do this by doing everything in Jesus' name. Um, however... That's not, of course, these aren't the only avenues by which we give thanks to God. It is always, at all times, and for everything and all things, that we give thanks to God the Father, who is himself the source of all blessings. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he is ultimately then the the mediator, I think, that's how it's seen here in these verses, uh, between us and the Father. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, it reminds me of chapter 1, where Paul is always saying that he's thankful for them in his prayers. Being thankful certainly seems to be, yeah, the thread of this passage. Uh, Same in the parallel passage, Ephesians 5.20. I almost see it as, do you want peace? Be more thankful. Do you want to be a better teacher and admonisher? Be more thankful. Do you want to represent Christ well? Be more thankful. That's good stuff. It seems to be an important pillar in the Christian life, being thankful in all things, all the time. Nick, we're getting into very practical verses here, especially with the relationship between husband and wife. And so Mm -hmm. in verse 18, why don't you talk to us about what it means for a wife to be under the harsh rulership and thumb of her abusive husband? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) no, that's not what we're talking about. What does it mean for a wife to be subject to her husband? Um, I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of the way – submission is viewed in our present culture and society. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some uh, some words in our culture and society are, are taboo. They're non-starters from the beginning, and I think submission is one of those. Not mm. just submission between husband and wife, or wife between uh, that wife gives to her husband, but submission generally. Um, we, we hate that word in our culture, unfortunately. Properly defined, though, the term, I believe, will enable us to understand what submission is and then how a wife gives it to her husband. Uh, It's a military term in one sense. It means to arrange in a military fashion under the command of a leader. Like how in the military you have uh, 
generals and admirals. Uh, under them, you'll have uh, commanders and colonels. And then under them, you'll have lieutenants and sergeants. Then finally, privates, airmen, seamen, all that stuff, right? Um, each one is vital and serves a purpose or role, but they all fit into their specific rank. Sure. Um, so they had military context, but it also had non-military connotations as well. It was a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. It is then a voluntary yielding in love. We do this with Christ. Um, see, um, what, Ephesians chapter 5? Specifically, as it pertains to wives and husbands, I am partial to John Piper's definition of uh, submission that a wife gives to her husband. He defines it this way. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it through according to her gifts. I think when you look at not just here in Colossians 3.18, but elsewhere, Ephesians 5 and uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and you put all these things together, I believe Piper's definition fits all of those uh, various contexts very well. Uh, what do you think? I like what you said about a voluntary yielding in love. You know, Nick, there are verses uh, that speak of Christ as the Son voluntarily yielding in love to the Father. He submits to the Father, even though they're both God. They're both Yahweh. And that is uh, actually one of the ancient arguments for Christ's divinity, is that um, a wife submitting to her husband doesn't mean she's less human or less in the image of God, but Christ, too, submits to his Father. And that doesn't make him less God, less Yahweh, or uh, any of that. A voluntary yielding in love. I like that. Paul's favorite image for this was Christ in the church, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. And let's just say for the modern day audience, because we have a lot of distortions about marriage today in our culture and nation. I think, I think that's a given when you have a 50% divorce rate. There seems to be a lot of distortions that we observe in what we see as marriage and what should be the blueprint of marriage from Scripture. Here's the thing. The filter that this should all go through is that the proper behavior between husband and wife should never be out of sync with the way we see Christ treating the church and the way we see the church uh, reacting to Christ. Hmm. I think that is the number one filter everything in marriage needs to be filtered through. And this goes both ways, Nick. What does it mean then in verse 19 for a husband to love his wife? I had a double clutch here because I immediately wanted to jump to headship and Interestingly, Paul doesn't mention headship here um, like he does over in Ephesians chapter 5, so I had to just kind of back up here for a second. <laughs> he, he, uh, he specifically mentions love, and it is – all of this is rooted in uh, Christ and and how we view him. Christ then <clears throat> loved us enough to leave heaven, come to earth, take on a human form, be spit upon, mocked crowned with a crown of thorns, nailed to a cross, abused, have a spear thrust into his side. He loved the church enough to die. That's a sacrificial love. And um, therefore, it is the sacrificial love, which is supposed to mark 
the love of a husband for his wife. It is a love which is undeserved. God is not rescuing people who deserve rescuing. He is saving those who don't deserve it because that's his nature when it comes to his love. Uh, And so sacrificial love says, you don't deserve anything, but I'm going to give you everything. Uh, You don't deserve anything, but I'll die for you. You don't even deserve my best, but I'm going to give you my life. That's ultimately what's at the heart of Christ's sacrificial love. And So Paul is saying uh, that we are to say to our wives, essentially, you may not deserve all those things. You may be a sinner. You may not be all that you could be, but that is never the issue. Uh, I love you. I am committing myself to you, even if you are the least deserving. And I will give you everything I have, even to the point of dying for you. I think that's what it means for a husband to love his wife. Uh, What do you think? Yeah, I like what you said about sacrificial love, which was unmerited. Um, Sometimes that is not really seen by us. You know, yesterday was Valentine's Day. I didn't see any Valentine's Day cards that said, um, even though you don't deserve it, I love you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Not very romantic. Um, Hallmark card, huh? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But on the other hand, there, there is a romantic side to Christ and the church. Um, Christ loves the church as his precious bride, uh, like the merchant who found the greatest pearl in the world, or like the man who sold all that he had for a field that had buried treasure inside. That phrase where we are, as the church, called God's possession, his treasured possession. Um, there is a romance in that. And so that's that's there as well. And I think that's good. It's good. There should be romance in between the husband and wife. And not so lots of lots of components here. Good thoughts. Hmm. Nick, another important relationship then is not just between husband and wife in the marriage context, but also between uh, parents and their children. What does it mean in the next few verses for children to be obedient? In all things, really, all things, and and how old are these children that we're talking about? Well, I mean, in one sense, we're all children, right? I mean, I uh, I have a mom and a dad. I'll see them later today. Um, but here, <clears throat> children means those still living at home, um, whether they're in elementary school or junior high school, high school, college. Um, they have a responsibility to obey their parents. Um, all those living under <clears throat> the single roof. Um, uh, and we'll talk about, or at least it's uh, pointed out here in verse 21, fathers don't provoke your children. So parents have an obligation too, right? But I think the idea here is as long as you live under their roof, um, they accept responsibility for you, you obey them. There are three things I tell my kids. obey, Always obey all the way and obey happily. That is, obey always. Not just when you feel like it, you got to do it at all times. Obey all the way. Don't just do it halfway. If um, I tell you pick up your toys, you pick them all up, not just some of them or most of them. And then you obey happily. Put a smile on your face, all right? Uh, Don't cop an attitude with me. Obey (laughs) always, all the way, and happily. Uh, So uh, I think it's those children who are still under the roof, but again, it does extend even beyond that in the parent-child relationship. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I mean, in the Greek here, children is technon, and so I think what you said is is right and good. I mean, we are training this 
attitude into our, our young ones. But the technon word is just means descendants, posterity, um, as opposed to, so there's no specific age range, age range put on here. So there are other Greek words that are more specific, like pidon is a child below the age of puberty or a very young child or, or even an infant. Um, the word mikros is someone who's very little, very small, very vulnerable. Um, the word nepios is for an infant, again, or a small child or someone not yet of legal age, a minor. And so I think we're talking about a, an intergenerational family context, respecting the faithful patriarch and matriarch of that family. Um, especially, you know, if you're living in one big house or, or one big housing complex, which would have been pretty common back then. Um, I like perhaps even fitting this back into the Christ uh, father relationship again. You have Christ in the church. We use as our filter for our marriage relationship, but we also have Christ and his father that I think we can use for our parenting relationship. But speaking of relationships, this next one is is pretty tough because it's the relationship between a slave and his master. Yeah, the tough text. Tough text of the day. Nick, verse 22, and even the first verse of chapter 4, does the Bible condone slavery? A lot can be said about this subject. I think we've touched on this previously in uh, when we talk about the book of Philemon way, way back in the archives. Um, I'm just going to try and condense some of this as much as possible. Slavery was an established institution when Paul penned these words. It had been in existence for millennia. Uh, there are several passages in the Bible that speak to the slave-master relations. Uh, especially under under the Torah, under the law. Um, and the, all those passages, by the way, were rooted in Israel's having been slaves in Egypt. So suffice it to say that for an Israelite to mistreat a slave would necessitate them trampling underfoot the law, and they upheld the law. They were supposed to keep that. So that was what was going on with God's people. Meanwhile, in the pagan realm, uh, while there were exceptions— the rule seems to have been that slavery was often a cruel and dehumanizing institution. The temptation for us in the 21st century American context is to read Paul's words through the lens of our own dark history of slavery, and there is a dark history there, but that would be a mistake, and I think for a couple of reasons. First, the slavery of the early American colonial period, uh, all the way even into the uh, 19th century in America, was a different animal altogether from the slavery of antiquity. The largest difference was the slavery of antiquity did not discriminate between race, sex, or other qualifiers. Another reason, uh, is, and perhaps more important, is that Paul's concern here is not the institution of slavery itself, whether it's right, wrong, or otherwise, but how one behaves when in that relationship. Paul neither condemns nor condones slavery. He explains how Christian slaves and Christian masters are to relate to one another in Christ. His emphasis is ethics among believers who are already in the institution. 
so there's no diatribe bemoaning the evils of slavery, neither is there a treatise on the benefits of slavery. Into all the chaos of injustice and abuse, <clears throat> I believe God speaks a word of order. He does not call for rebellion. He calls for respect. He does not call for a revolution. He calls for reverence. Slaves are not to be subversive, but submissive. Now think about it. If Paul had called for an outright abolition of slavery, that would have immediately discredited the Christian movement from the beginning. No one would have taken it seriously. However, I believe that the way of humble submission through that way, God laid the groundwork for a subversion of the institution of slavery. You know, Nick, I think, so, yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> good job, by the way. Yeah, that was a good answer. Um, it, it almost reminds us that when God causes change to come about in individuals or communities or societies or the world, it's usually like not an overnight, like, zapping of change. God right. does have a measure of elasticity in which he accommodates us, in which he helps us to acclimate into a better uh, place than where we were. And that acclimation is important because there's only so much, I think, change that somebody can, can do in a short amount of time. And so I, I like what you're saying there. There's other questions, though. You know, in the verse right after this, it says, do your work then as a slave heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And the question comes, Nick, what if the slave has an evil master? What do we do? Mm, yeah. Um, well, what if a wife had an unbelieving husband? Yeah. Right? First um, Peter 3, verse 1, I believe, addresses that. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, implying there were some who didn't obey the word, non-Christians, uh, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So the call of God still remains on an individual's life. Um, uh, so for the slave, even with uh, an unjust or evil master, the call remained there. And that's because a slave's obedience <clears throat> is <clears throat> excuse me, Christocentric. It is focused on, centered on Christ. In fact, you see this in every verse where it's mentioned here. Every verse, every exhortation to the slave is focused on Christ. He talks about fearing the Lord, as for the Lord, you are serving Christ. All of your work is therefore sacred, even if the boss is a bad boss. So let me just say this, as we <clears throat> try to bring some stuff across the bridge to today. Jesus is boss over every boss, if you want to think about it that way, right? Lord of Lords, King of Kings, boss of bosses. You happen to be employed to a certain boss. You will be employed, probably, throughout your life to various bosses. By faith, though, we see beyond this transient life, beyond our fleshly masters, to our heavenly master. And we realize that whatever service I render, I render it unto the Lord. All our work takes on new meaning then. How we treat people on the job is affected. Whether we cut grass or clean pools, fix cars, educate children, administrate over educators, whatever your job or career is, Christ is the boss. And so everything and everyone is important. That makes sense? Yeah, I think it does make sense. And uh, I am glad that I can, if I have a bad boss, I can I can quit. <laughs> I can yeah. go get a different job. And so uh, what a measure of faith that uh, these slaves, uh, these Christian slaves, 
would have had to exhibit if they really were stuck. They couldn't, they couldn't go anywhere else. And uh, yeah, I like your reference to you know if a wife had an unbelieving husband, um, you stay in that uh, environment if if it's agreeable to your husband, so that you can win them over with your conduct. And maybe the slave would win over the evil master with his conduct. Um, one one clarification, though, we're not saying that women should stay with a husband that's like beating them and abusing them. Sure. Uh, that's different. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no. In the slavery context, yes, a slave may have been beaten and abused, and and even there, uh, it would probably be best for them to, to leave to find another place if possible. Very dicey. Like, lots of stuff going on there. I like your answer, though, and it makes me wonder then, Nick, um, what is this reward of inheritance for the slave in verse 24 then, if, if he endures? What is that? You know— as I mentioned, um, and as you've, you've pointed out as well, you know, the, the slave, they didn't have their own will. They didn't have a lot to look forward to in this life. Uh, they had even less to look forward to if they had an unjust master. So they certainly did not have an inheritance left by the master when he or she died. But in the Lord, their real master, they would be richly rewarded by him with an inheritance in heaven. In fact, the knowledge of an eternal reward, that served as an impetus, as the energy necessary for their earthly work. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that does make sense. Uh, the slave's inheritance, in in one sense, in one very real way, is, is the same as any other Christian. You know, it's our resurrection body. That's our inheritance. But amazingly, Paul doesn't say that the slave has to become some sort of super Christian with an amazing ministry or to make a big name for himself to have this great inheritance. He can simply be Christ's representative in all the work that he does for his earthly master. It's interesting, Nick, to think of one's occupation, even if it's slavery, as a path to Christ's glorification in you and your glorification in Christ. I think that's beautiful. Nick, we're on our last verse here in Colossians, verse 25. We have um, a very powerful statement. God uh, shows no partiality. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. Do you think maybe there's a veiled reference to a certain group of people being made in this verse, Nick? Uh, There could be, and it's interesting how verse uh, 25 gets parsed out with 4 verse 1. Uh, with the masters, there's some who read verse 25 as pertaining to the masters. Uh, what I know is God's justice is in view. He is ultimately the impartial judge of all. Um, so it could be, like I said, could be spoken to the masters, but at the same time, uh, it's equally comforting for the slave to know that the wrongdoer will be punished. Uh, the evil master will be punished. Uh, you know, the, you have a lot in the Psalms, and it could be here where... Um, uh, the Christian is saying, God, don't let them get away with it. And essentially God says, they won't. That's right. So, yeah. Vengeance uh, is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Yeah. It makes me wonder if Paul, uh, I think you're right about the masters. It's, it seems connected to the masters of chapter 4, verse 1. I also kind of wondered if he was also hinting at the false teachers and Jewish Jewish mystics that he spent the first half of the letter battling. 
if the Colossians are in perhaps even some sort of situation like that of the book of Jude, uh, what if some of those slave masters, some of those leaders in the church are also the same bad guys, the Jewish mystics and these other uh, people that Paul is battling? That would be way harder and intimidating to confront if that's the case. I mean, yeah, you're confronting definitely. your own master, you're confronting the leaders of the church. That's, whew, that's scary. Well, Nick, I think that concludes us, uh, concludes our podcast on chapter three of Colossians. Uh, you have any final thoughts? I think we've upholstered the subject today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. A lot here. Colossians has um, given us a workout, and we've we've put some sweat into our uh, preparation here. We got one chapter left, Nick. Chapter four. We'll jump into that next week. That'll conclude our series on Colossians. Um, a bit shorter, a lot about individuals whom Paul names out specifically. So that'll be an interesting uh, way of wrapping up the lesson, reflecting upon some of our uh, thoughts in the entire series. And then we'll likely uh, take a little break because I may have a newborn on my hands. That's right. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, Well, in the meantime, uh, feel free going to the uh, iTunes store, going to the uh, Google Play Music store and search swordplay find the podcast in those respective places and uh, download all the episodes to your respective device and also leave a review and help us get the word out about the podcast that's right and if you have any questions send that to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com that's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear your thoughts and uh We hope you tune back in next time for another episode of Sword Blood.